We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Joining us today for the Water Cooler podcast is Scott Young. Scott's story demonstrates the Menzies' vision for Australia in action, where hard work is reward and anyone can get ahead. Scott was born into the bleak housing commission quarters of Sydney's Waterloo to migrant parents. Scott went on to get a quality education at Sydney Boys High School, a public selective school. His first job was a teller at Westpac, and after a few years of climbing the corporate ladder, he took on the important role heading up recruitment at Mark Burris's ASX-listed Yellow Brick Road. At the age of 26, Scott challenged now Premier Chris Minns for the state seat of Cogra. With minimal resources, Scott basically equaled Minns on primary vote, leaving it as the most marginal seat in the state. No doubt Chris Minns was relieved to hear that Scott wouldn't be challenging him at the state election in March this year. Today, Scott is an education entrepreneur running his primary school coaching college, The Primary Way. This is a startup that focuses on helping children in their early learning stages develop STEM subjects whilst providing practical skills, workshops, public speaking, um, communications courses, and even teaching kids about coding at a young age um, so that they're work- workforce ready. Scott, can you tell me about your upbringing um, and your parents and just give us a bit of a backstory to what it was like growing up in Waterloo? Well, Dave, first of all, um, thank you for inviting me on here. Congratulations on your new role as Executive uh, Director here at the Menzies Research Centre. It's very exciting to see someone, you know, so young, so fresh, so energetic in this role. Uh, big shoes to fill, of course. Um, so thank you for having Thanks, me. Thanks, um, Look, my mum's my from Shanghai. Uh, my dad's from Hong Kong, migrant parents that came to Australia. Dad came in the late 70s. Um, he went to primary school here, went to high school here. Mum came in the 80s, uh, fleeing the communist regime over there. Um, she, she always jokes to me that um, they were forcing her to do chemistry, and that's something she vehemently didn't want to do, uh, and uh, hence she came to Australia to start a life here. Look, my upbringing, uh, Dave, was very, very simple. Um, look, we had, I, I guess I was brought up with three things, a, a quality public school education. I went on to um, high school at Sydney Boys High School. Um, I think when I got sick, we had access to um, a good healthcare system here and just lots of love from my family. And I think that's that's so important for every single person, irrespective of their backgrounds. Those three things provide a platform of aspiration for people to get ahead. What a great story. What fostered that interest in politics? What led you to uh, the Liberal Party and how did that all come about? Yeah, look, it was completely random, to be very open with you, Dave. Um, My family has always been in small business. They've always worked extremely hard. So mum and dad still have, uh, but had this tutoring school. They still have it today in Hurstfall. And they were presented a local business award by um, one of the local members there, Mark Kure, um, the member for Oatley. And uh, Mark presented mum with a um, business award um, and uh, they started talking. And before you know it, mum says, oh, look, I met this politician. You've got to go meet him. He's very keen to meet you as well. And I said, I was 18 then, first year out of um, high school. And, um, and basically I said, mum, look, I have no interest in politics at all. I want to get into business um, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And basically she said, oh, please, uh, please give me some face. It's very important. I've already promised him that you'll go meet him. And I said, okay, fine, mum, I'll I'll turn up to his office. And then so we went and um, before you know it, he pulled out a form in front of me. He said, would you like to sign up to the Liberal Party? Look, I didn't care too much then as many 18-year-olds about politics and many young people these days anyway. And um, I said, how much is it going to cost? I think it was 35 or 40 bucks. And I said, mum, do you have that money? 
and uh, I signed up and uh, and before you know it I, I fell in love with politics I think um, the, the campaigning aspects the connecting with voters mm. being able to listen to them and uh, just just exciting activities um, being recruited for example by former Prime Minister John Howard to campaign alongside him um, in you know diverse electorates like uh, Hurstville uh, in the suburb of Hurstville sorry it was just one of the most um, exciting experiences to get out there to listen to connect and um, and to, to share some of those Australian liberal values Chris means who you ran against uh, when you were when you were 26 not that not that long ago uh, you gave him a run for his money. I think 69 first preference votes you, you, you lost by. You obviously really enjoyed that campaign and flourished in that environment. Did you think you could win? Look, I was in it to win it. Um, obviously, the whole... It was very unexpected. Um, over the years, I've always had the, uh, the advice given to me by my mentors to get a real job, quote, unquote, John Howard, to get a real job before getting into politics. But um, I guess, you know, back then, I was a big fan of Gladys Berejiklian. And uh, when obviously asked to run, I considered it. I looked at the seat. I think politics is the art of the possible. Mm. In fact, Menzies said back then that whoever won the seat of St George would uh, go on to win government. So Cogra was a state seat that fell within that sort of mm. federal space. Um, and uh, look, there was only seven to eight weeks. We had to fundraise. I was very grateful that... Um, that um, you know, Howard did a fundraiser for us. Tony Abbott was very supportive, mm. and so was Malcolm Turnbull. Um, but we got out there, and I think the reason for, I, I mean, even though we lost, the reason um, for us really gaining a, a positive result, um, and it, sh it just goes to show that even if a seat is not typically a marginal seat mm. uh, or targeted by head office, mm. we should never give up on it. Mm. Because I think if you can put a candidate earlier on in the field, a candidate that can campaign with... Um, a large group of volunteers, um, then some some good results can be produced. It was very special because the, the electorate of Cogra was um, obviously is very diverse, and not only diverse in terms of cultures. We had, you know, people of Nepalese, Lebanese, Greek, and obviously Chinese background, Australians as well. But it was diverse in terms of the people, in terms of their, you know, their age, um, the professional backgrounds. You you had you know people from tradies yeah. to young professionals to small business owners. Um, but what um, what was a underlying, I guess, um, theme to to everyone there was that they, they wanted to be heard. They wanted to be heard, um, and whether it was you know sharing about um, you know how to do small business better, whether it was about um, you know fairer wages, whether it was just simply putting a no, no stopping sign in front of right. their house, so you know that they would you know, not have all these cars parked in front of their homes. I mean, it's just about getting out there, listening. Um, and being an advocate for them, so um, it was it was a great campaign. We outnumbered Labor and Chris Minns at every single post, and um, I mean my philosophy was very simple: if they had one volunteer, we'd have five. Um, so at pre-poll, um, I remember um, we clearly outnumbered them, and I think the results at Hurstful pre-poll showed that. I think we beat them by over a thousand votes. Um, and, um, and it's just about making sure that you win every single aspect of a campaign, um, for example. Um, and that, that's how I think uh, every marginal seat um, should be or can be run in that, um, for example, if pre-poll opened at 8 a.m., um, we should have guys there by 6 a.m. We should be taking every single um, A-frame position possible 
um, legally possible, 100 metres or whatever metres down the road, and ensuring that they had no space. I remember Chris coming up to me saying, oh, Scott, you've taken up all the A-frame space. And, and I said, well, you know, you've got to get up earlier to have the space. So I think it's outnumbering them in terms of, you know, troops on the ground, um, ensuring that you outpresence them in terms of every single way possible. We also ran a very strong social digital campaign. One of the criticisms of Chris Min's, I recall hearing and I sense this myself, was that he lacked the energy required to, to run a state. You certainly as candidate didn't, didn't lack the energy. You, you, you gave it 110%, which is great. Uh, it's such a great community, Cogra, and you've, you've picked up on some of the aspects about the community there and their passions. Uh, it's, I went to school not too far from there in, in, in Hurstville, in and around Hurstville, and uh, you know, Cogra... St. George Christian. St. George Christian School. Yes. Shout out to St. George Christian School. Uh, one of the things I, I think about Cogra, of course, this is, this, Cogra is the birthplace of, not many people would know, but the birthplace of Clive James, um, a, a, a great Australian who, um, who passed away uh, recently, but uh, it represents the best of multicultural Australia as well. So they, they, they saw a great ambassador in you, which is why I hope to see you running, running again uh, for the Liberal Party. But it represents the best of best of multicultural Australia um, and, and and aspiration as well. Uh, on the on the theme of, of aspiration, what led you to start up your own business? Uh, how did you how did you yeah, what gave you the confidence to take on that challenge? Yeah, look, I, it's an interesting question because when I lost that um, election back in 2019, I thought to myself, well, now I'm unemployed and I need to get a job. Um, and I think before that, um, if I could just share a little mm. bit about my career, I mean, um, I mean, I worked uh, at Yellow Brick Road for about four years uh, prior to the state election. Now that's Mark Burris's um, very successful uh, firm, Yellow Brick Road. Yeah, that's right. And I've always looked up to Mark um, ever since, um, ever since I, I guess knowing about him, uh, you know, through the final years at high school. Uh, Mark built an incredible, um, incredible uh, business in Wizard Home Loans. Um, he, I think, in under eight years or nine years, he uh, he was able to sell Wizard Home Loans for um, for I think over just under uh, over half five hundred million dollars, half a billion dollars, uh, to GE Money. I think it was the single largest um, transaction then in Australian history. And is he a self-made man? Uh, he absolutely is. I mean, he's a guy that was you know brought up in Punchbowl, mm. um, Bankstown area. Uh, his parents, um, Greek Australians, worked really hard. I think his dad worked three, four jobs. Mm -hmm. His mum looked after the kids at home. And to see someone of that nature work so hard to get ahead, mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's what being Australian is all about. Of course. Um, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. Of it doesn't course. matter if, you're, if, if you've been here, if you're, you know, your, your ancestors have been here for, you know, many, many years. It doesn't matter if they're new migrants. Um, what it means to be Australian is the opportunity to work hard, to realise your dreams, um, and um, and I think that the Liberal Party and this and, and Australia should be the country of hopes and dreams, and um, you know and and when I was working at Yellow Brick Road, that's what it was all about for Mark, the hopes and dreams, and I think one of the um, 
I'm going off tangent a little no, bit. But no, one it's of the, interesting. Yeah, but one I think the Australian dreams that Mark spoke to me about was um, the dream of owning your own home and retiring comfortably. So um, I've always wanted to work at um, Yellow Brick Road. And one time I actually bumped into um, Mark at university. I was a first year uni kid. I was in the Q Lounge at UNSW. And then it was, there this it was. your first interaction, first conversation with Mark? Yeah, first right. interaction. And I was like, no way, that's Mark Burris. And I recognised him, so... I mustered enough courage just to go up to him and I said, Mark, I'm a big fan of you, even though you're a Sydney Rooster fan and I'm a St. George Dragons boy. Um, you know, can I work for you? I said. And he said, Oh, look, Scott, um, you'd be just photocopying, clipping, filing, etc. You should go work at a big four bank. Um, and so I actually worked at, as a teller at Westpac mm-hmm. um, for, I think, six months. It was, it was a great job in that it taught me professionalism and structure, but it was one of the most boring jobs right. um, at, down at Bondi Beach as well. And um, eventually I, I ended up meeting uh, David Coleman, who's mm-hmm. a federal member mm-hmm. um, for banks. I did a lot of door knocking for him. And uh, it was David who actually, who was also on the board of Yellow Brick Road. Uh, then because David you see had had also a very successful private sector career um, before entering politics he was the chairman of 9MSN and mm-hmm. also head of digital and strategy at, at, at uh, 9 Entertainment Channel 9 and um, David got me into a role at um, Yellow Brick Road um, and I was in the beginning just the office boy I was stapling I was filing in fact um, tragedy hit on the second day at Yellow Brick Road when my manager came up to me and said Scott look we in fact don't have the budget for you. Even as a humble stapler and it, filer. Even as a humble right. <laughs> stapler and filer, that's right. Um, and and I said, oh, really? Are you serious? And I, I was so, I was only second day into my honeymoon period in this job. And they said, yeah, we've got to let you go. And I was absolutely devastated. And I told them, I told my manager, I said, hey, mate, look, I'll work for free. He said, are you serious? And I said, yes, I will work for free. And... Uh, well, he, he, he accepted that and for the next eight weeks I worked, I remember, 8.30 to 5.30 every single day as a, I think, a 20-year-old um, stapling, filing um, and um, before you know it, um, you know, fast forward four years, I ended up um, running uh, the, the national distribution as the head of recruitment for um, our franchises across the country, opening more Yellow Brick Road branches, ensuring a healthy distribution of uh, mortgage brokers ac- across the country. And uh, I've always been inspired by what Mark stood for uh, in terms of giving power back to the everyday Australian. Mm. Uh, the big banks, you know, the f- big four banks always had a lot of power in terms of the lending capacity. But when you have another player like Yellowbrook Road um, with its um, group of, I guess, mortgage brokers, um, it gave consumers the option. Fascinating. So you worked, you worked for free when the, the job or the role was, was on the line. Incredibly impressive. And... You know that's that, that's enabled you to get ahead, and um, and you ended up being head of recruitment at the at Yellow Brick Road um, before you moved on to start up start up your own business. This is an inspiring story, which is one of the reasons why um, I wanted to record this this podcast today. And as I said at the outset, um, back to Menzies' vision, where anyone that works hard can get ahead, and the environment in Australia that we've got fosters that that culture and attitude. Uh, is, is really really encouraging, and it's encouraging to see that um, that that you've um, you've succeeded. Tell me tell me about the the business that you now that you're now running. 
Yeah, so after the election, I thought, you know, do I get back into the corporate world or do I start my own business? Um, and my family has always been um, in the education business. Mm. Um, in fact, they started, you know, before I was born. Mum and dad, if I can share, mm. um, they would be selling books at Paddy's Market Flemington right. um, uh, every Saturday, every Sunday. Um, and I remember getting up 4am, going to the markets, unpacking the books, uh, talking to customers, uh, and uh, I didn't get paid for that, by the way. Right, right. Well. What type of books were they selling? Oh, just so, children's education, children's education, education books. Right. Yeah. So you know, back then the Jim Coronius basic skills books, the Excel books that yeah. we you know sort of do on the weekends and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of great small businesses have started in the stalls at Paddy's Markets or markets across Australia. Yeah, hundred percent. From flower businesses mm. to to food businesses, mm. I mean, it's just it's it's what it means to be Australian to mm. to be able to start your own business. But of course, in terms of that aspect, I guess we might talk about it a bit later. Mm. Um, you know, we should foster an environment where it's easier for people to realise their aspirations and their dreams as well. So I started um, the tutoring business. I guess in 2020, um, but I, what I've realised as well when it comes to education is the fact that um, we we have to be equipping our next generation of leaders to succeed in the workforce. Mm. Mm. And I think a lot of the things that we're teaching, literacy, numeracy, they're all very very important, and we, there is an area of um, of uplift uh, in that. In, in that field. However, I think more than ever with the rise of artificial intelligence, with the rise of uh, tech, that it's important to equip our students uh, with skills such as coding um, and also things such as emotional intelligence, communications and speaking skills because I feel that in many ways they're irreplaceable human skills um, and, and, and that's why uh, we focus on all those skills as well at our, in our business. At the Venzis Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Like you, Scott, I, I benefited from um, a great education, what I thought was a, was a great education. You went to a... A, um, a, a public selective school. I went to a small, modest um, Christian private school. My, my first year at university, I noticed that a lot of the international students who were, I, I, I was studying science at the time, and a lot, of the, a lot of the international students were in our first year repeating things that they'd already learned in their final year of, um, of, of secondary school overseas where for, for a lot of us. Australian students that had come out of our education system here, a lot of what we were encountering were, were, were new concepts in that first year at university. From what I've seen and from the data I've seen as well, our education system of late is is lagging behind. Uh, we used to not not lead the world, but we'd certainly have a spot in the in the top ten when it came to literacy, uh, numeracy, and STEM skills. But we've been we've been declining. Obviously, this is something that you're. Uh, I'm not sure if you've got the stats in stats in front of you there. 
but we've, we've obviously been declining of late. Uh, this is a challenge that you're trying to address with, uh, with, with the work that, that you're doing. Um, is there still hope? Of course there's hope, absolutely. And we can be number in the world. We can be number one in the world. And um, that, that's something we should aspire to. Um, I mean, in the early 2000s, Australia ranked fourth internationally in reading, eighth in science. Um, and Australia has lost the equivalent of one of years worth of learning over the past two decades. I think this is alarming because um, we were once on par with the top performing nations in terms of education, such as Singapore. Um, but now, the average 15-year-old Singaporean is three years ahead of Australian pupils. Now, that's a big, um, that's a big educational disadvantage, but it's also a huge um, economic disadvantage as well. Um, we, we really can be improving on that front. And um, what's also alarming is that our performance has slipped despite Australia spending more than the OECD average on education and record levels of government funding. I mentioned earlier on in one of my uh, in my first Sydney Morning Herald op-ed that um, it's not just about splashing the cash because we've done plenty of that. We certainly have. Yeah. Um, and I think the tide is certainly turning on governments and future governments in terms of big spending. I think we need to curb that. And I think it's so important to think about how we deliver, not what and how much we spend, but how we deliver the highest quality of education. I mean, in our, in our sessions, when one of our tutors have to take on eight or ten students, that's already a challenge. And it's not easy being a teacher. I mean, you have to be so present moment, um, no kids, no two kids are the same, um, and you have to be so sensitive to their emotions. Um, and alongside the fact that they've got different levels in terms of their literacy, their numeracy, um, and whatever else we're, we're looking to educate them on, um, the classroom sizes are still too big. And I think um, we can certainly incorporate a lot more technology in the way we deliver our education. I think accountability is very, very important. And I think, um, I think we, we should be rewarding a lot of our um, good teachers um, that worked hard, so hard every single day um, with bonuses as well. And that can be tracked with you know, performance measurements such as um, you know, how well their students improve. Um, we should introduce adaptive testing uh, rather than a standardised way of testing. Adaptive testing is very, very important because um, students should be encouraged to improve um, based on themselves, not a comparison with the rest of their peers in that sense as well. Um, and, and I think education can also be, be improved um, through parental education. We find that the best, um, the students that improve the most, uh, the most effectively, are students that um, have their parents involved to some level of degree. Um, yet, um, when we look at our schools, I feel like teacher and um, parent communications is not strengthened enough, and I think that's an area that we can certainly be exploring into the future. Some very important points there, Scott. A few I'd just like to, to, to pick up on. We do need to do a better job of valuing our teachers. Uh, and, and that, of course, the more that we value them in, as a society, we will attract more and better teachers as a result. Uh, you know, you tune in to, to, to talk back um, radio from, from time to time and you hear people criticising the amount of holidays um, school teachers get. Uh, of course, you, you try working in a classroom as one teacher with 30 unruly school, school, school children. It's a very, very difficult job. We need to do a better job of valuing teaching as a profession. Uh, 
we we you, you identified the point it's not just money as well it's not just financial investments that we need um, so there's a lot that we need to do as a society at the MRC we're going to be focusing on these challenges as well particularly through our Centre for Youth Policy as well and what we what we need to do more of uh, but despite all the additional investments uh, the extra billions of dollars over the last 10 years standards have been declining um, so we need to take a fresh approach so um, we're grateful for your contributions to the work that we'll be doing doing on that front. Uh, you also made a very important point. It puts us at an economic disadvantage as well, uh, particularly at a time when we've got skill shortages in, in, in various areas and we're relying on uh, labour from, from overseas. So uh, that, that, that highlights the importance of uh, improving our, our education system, even from an economic, economic point of view. As a business owner, what are what are some of the challenges that you've that you that you've faced? Is is Australia an easy and is New South Wales an easy place to do business? Oh well, look, I think small business is is so so important. In fact, I mean, for me, one of the most challenging aspects um, of running a business um, is is the fact that you've got so many overheads, right? And then on top of that, the taxation rates, you got the payroll tax, you've got your startup costs, and you've got so much red tape just to get your business up and running. So um, I'll give you an example. Imagine you're a 30-year-old guy. Uh, you want to, you're thinking of starting your own business, right? Australia is meant to be the, meant to be the land of hopes and dreams. Um, and here you go. You've got a young guy. He, wants, he or she wants to start their own business, but they need you know, some investment. Um, and then along the way of that investment, they got to look at getting approvals from councils, approvals from bodies, um, and and that that process could take months, uh, months. Um, and and even when that's done, um, they haven't even potentially closed their first sale yet. Um, on top of that, uh, you've got Saturday uh, loading, you've got Sunday loading. So for those that are looking to fulfill their hope and dream of starting their own business I think Dave it's it's an incredible right. challenge and I think um, what's so important is Australia I think can do more in terms of um, supporting small business and family enterprises in Australia because um, it represents the engine room of our economy and the heart of our community in fact small business accounts for between 97.4 percent I think and 98.4 percent of all businesses um, and they contributed almost um, approximately 418 billion dollars that's equivalent to, to the GDP by the way that's equivalent to over 32 percent of Australia's total economy now here's here's the driver even if your hopes and dreams are to start a business uh, and that succeeds. You're providing the hopes and dreams for 4.7 million more people. What does that mean? That means small businesses are employing over 4.7 million people, giving them jobs. And that represents, Dave, that represents 41% of the business workforce. Um, what's another alarming statistic is that less than 8% um, of business owners are un of small business owners, sorry, are under the age of 30. So we can really cultivate a, a, a much more, I guess, incentivizing business environment um, for people that want to get out there. And I think for a lot of younger people, um, especially you know through social media, um, a lot of them are influencers these days as well. There's a new sort of economy that's that's rising. I think um, encouraging.
encouraging entrepreneurship is very, very important. Allowing them, uh, you know, dropping the threshold for them to start their own business um, would be would be would be awesome. I think not everyone these days want to simply go out there and get a job. They want to start their own business, and we need to make it easier uh, for them over time. How much money did you have to outlay before making that first sale? Look, that's a very good question. Look, for me, I'm, I was. Look, I, I don't come from an incredibly um, wealthy background. Um, I started the business on seventy thousand um, dollars of your own money. Of my own money, yeah. seventy thousand dollars, and um, and I think I know I know for example a lot of hospitality businesses, restaurants, they would have to sink you know over half a million dollars into their kitchen, their furniture, um, and obviously they're on you know their the, the startup ongoing variable costs. Um, but for us, it was seventy thousand dollars cheap fit out um, get the basics in um, find whatever I had in my uh, in my mum's garage as well and get the ball rolling so seventy thousand dollars that's already that's not a lot I think for for starting a a retail small business um, others would be sinking more but imagine you're sinking that much you don't break even until typically two to three years um, you got to pay taxes on top of that you've got headaches I mean uh, it's 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 quite unincentivizing to start a business in Australia and if we are going to be the country of hopes and dreams I think one of the things we can improve on is ensuring that it's easier for people to start their businesses so you're paying payroll tax. You're paying GST. You're um, you're paying you're paying income tax um, as as well. Uh, sorry, comp- company tax as well. Uh, there's other forms of regulation and hoops you have to jump through. You're obviously a very smart man, but how did you negotiate all of that by yourself? Were there people you could rely on for help? Look, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, you just got to make it happen. And that's one of our core values at the primary way. Um, make it happen, find a way. And I think, you know, if you're a business owner, you've got money on the line um, and that money can only last you so long. Um, so a lot of research, turning up to, um, turning up to um, you know, council, for example, in person, um, being friendly, asking them to approve things, you know, quicker, um, just just by being nice and turning up, calling, relentlessly following up. It's all the little things that count. Well, council should be doing bending over backwards to support, support small businesses. So I hope that's the case. Um, but they do make it challenging um, from some of some of what we hear. Uh, moving on, I noticed last week you had a private meeting with uh, Peter Dutton and um, a number of representatives from the um, Australian Chinese community. What was your perception of Peter going into that meeting, and can I ask how did that change at the end of at the end of your discussion with him? Look, prior to this year, I've never met Peter Dutton, um, and I've only heard things about him in the media. And he's presented, I think, uh, quite unfairly by the media uh, in many many ways. Um, but the Peter I got to know over this year uh, is someone who is incredibly honest. Um, and I think what earned respect was the fact that he was so straightforward. Um, I think many politicians beat around the bush. Uh, they don't talk straight, but Peter talks straight. And when he disagreed on a view, he would share that. And I think uh, that earns uh, trust and respect. And I think um, what was also very, um, I guess, um, reassuring about Peter was the fact that he's willing to listen. 
you know he's he reached out because he's so um, passionate about engaging with uh, communities and Australians right across our um, diverse multicultural fabric um, and and I know him and his whole team um, are looking at doing that and they're already starting um, so Peter's willing to listen and in fact in that meeting Peter gave us over an hour and I could tell you whilst there was only maybe about 20 of us in that room um, Peter listened to every single person now I've been in these um, sort of engagement meetings before these community forums um, and the politician he's yeah. taking notes or pretending to take notes and then he says well thank you for sharing thank you very much Mr XYZ it's great to listen to you but what Peter did was different Peter would listen to um, what each and every single person was saying and he would give a very detailed response um, and uh, that just goes to show how much integrity, how much care Peter Dutton has. And um, look, obviously, it's an incredibly challenging job for Peter being the first opposition leader since um, our party lost government. But, um, you know, I have a lot of hope in him. So he's gone into that discussion, Scott, not just wanting a photograph with um, a diverse group of Chinese Australians. He's gone into that discussion wanting to learn and want to understand what he as a political leader can do better. Is that yeah. the impression you got? Yeah, 100%. He's, he, he went in there, uh, he listened to every single person. He wasn't there just for a photo. He gave us a lot of his time. Um, and um, I think there's a lot to look forward to when it comes to Peter um, listening and reaching out to uh, communities ahead over the next few months, over the next few years. I'm very excited about um, the, the prospects for Peter um, ahead. This is not just an editorial for Peter Dutton, but I, I have known Peter for, for around a decade and I've picked up on that point um, that, that, that you've just made that you've just made there. He, he listens and he's genuine when he's, when he's listening as well. And if he doesn't agree, he'll, he'll, he'll state his case clearly in a, in a very respectful way. And that just fosters more trust as well. Um, you know what you're going to get with you know what you're going to get with Peter, um, and he is incredibly receptive to to information, advice, and he does take counsel and guidance. And that's why, from what I've seen, he's he's he certainly does have the trust of his colleagues, those that he's worked with for for a number of years. So I'm glad you you, you got to see that as well. Hundred percent. And if I can just add, Dave, um, you know what you're going to get with Peter Dutton. You know what you're going to get. The last thing you want to do is to vote for someone um, and uh, they keep things vague, you don't know what you're getting and before you know it they run the country into the ground. Um, what I really appreciated about Peter Dutton was his clarity on the priority of important issues facing people mm -hmm. and I love the fact how he understands the importance of the economy because I think you know obviously um, issues such as the voice are very very important there's a lot of work to do um, in terms of um, helping our First Nations people um, however Peter's um, Peter's focus on the economy is very very important when we have you know you know record levels of inflation um, and economic un uncertainty I think you know what everyday Australians care about is you know that they can be financially um, sound, that they could go home, they could look after their families, um, they could pay the bills, and I think that's the most important. Um, when you're, I mean, going off tangent a little bit, but um, you know, a referendum costs a lot of money, and I understand that the voice is very, very important, but um, but what what Peter's um, focusing on are the economic issues and. 
um, I'm so enlightened that we have such a talented opposition leader that's um, putting focus on the right things for Australians and for families. Peter was... was uh, some sections of the media sought to ridicule Peter. I saw this week when he was asked what he thought one of the most important issues facing Indigenous Australians was, and he nominated cost, cost of living. Um, and some sections of the media sought to ridicule him. I, over that, I saw Warren Mundine jump to his defence and said that that's right. It's often hard to, to characterise a single issue as being the number one issue for a particular community. But if I can, if I can ask you, taking your Liberal hat off, what are the biggest issues for the for the Chinese Australian community um, at, at at the moment? Look, I think I think the Chinese Australian community is very very much. Look, all com- you can't say every com- we can't say that every community is homogenous, um, and I think what matters to everyday Australians matter to everyday Chinese Australians, Indian Australians, Australians of all backgrounds, and what they care about. I think um, the top three things are. Um, being able to financially provide for their families. Um, so jobs, um, a strong economy that flows down um, is very, very important to them. Uh, and that means um, how do we make our country more prosperous? How do we unlock more trade? How do we make it easier for businesses to start and to flourish? How do we ensure that wages um, are fair? Um, and that provides the economic st- stability that underpins uh, the importance of the family institution. Um, families are so important because families um, are your closest. And I know you had um, your baby recently, so congrats on that. But you go back to your, you go back home to your partner. Um, you share things, um, and you're you're each other's counselors. But how can a family provide that level of emotional support if there's no financial um, stability? If there's no economic stability? Um, so I think um, you know. Um, that financial stability is very, very important. I think that uh, the, the institution of family is incredibly uh, a big driver of our of a stable society. And last but not least, um, equal opportunity, and that means education. So, um, you know, irrespective of your background, if you can get a quality education, um, uh, you're equipping yourself to be able to realise your dreams as an adult, and that should be available to each and every single Australian. I think that's a perfect point to, to end this discussion on. I'm, I'm sure you all found Scott's story to be an inspiring one. Uh, you're doing great things with your business, but I'm sure if you did decide to run for Parliament one day, it would be all the better for your presence there. So thank you, Scott, for joining us. Thank you so much, Dave. Cheers. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Listener.